I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. The one that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Hi, it's Demetrius. Hey, Demetrius, it's Mark. They're in. Nice. Taking it to the next level. Launching phase two of Gable Media on October 7th. 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 It's really a, a necessity now for merchants to be able to do their own level of competitive e-commerce in that space but still maintain some of, you know, what their competitive advantage as a brand would be competing against large people like Amazon. In its simplest form, retail is the sale of goods to the public for use or consumption. Advancements and changes in technology, consumer habits, and government policy have significantly changed business models of retailers around the world. So much so, that these changes have and will continue to ripple into the way we design and build these spaces. This is Spaces Podcast, where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello, my name is Demetrius. Jason and Michelle are out today, but you are listening to Spaces Podcasts. Thank you for coming back, everyone. In today's episode, 
we're going to dig into retail. There's so much that has changed this industry from more recently big box stores, then Amazon and e-commerce, which have drastically changed the landscape of brick and mortar retail spaces. While e-commerce will continue to be a staple of retail businesses moving forward, some architects, designers, and builders in the retail world are approaching their delivery systems in a new way to attract consumers uh, back to physical stores. To help me dig into this a little bit, my guests today are from Cactus, an experiential design firm who works at the intersection of digital technology and physical architecture. Noah Waxman, head of strategy, is a creative and strategic leader with 15 years of experience in brand strategy, innovation consulting, and entrepreneurship. Noah is focused on leading his team to produce creative work that is bold enough to capture imaginations while at once calculated enough to make an impact in the real world. Prior to founding Cactus, Noah was strategy director at Red Scout, where he helped C-suite clients tackle their thorniest innovation and brand challenges. And my second guest is Lucas Wertheim, head of technology and production, where he is bridging creativity with technology in an organic and powerful way. He specializes in identifying efficiencies and resources that bring seemingly impossible projects into the realm of reality and feasibility. Lucas has directed technology-oriented projects for clients such as Beyonce, Apple, Oliver Eliasson, MIT Media Lab, MTV, Intel, DirecTV, Coca-Cola, and others. He has worked at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, File and Creators Project, and taught an audio synthesis class in the Design and Technology MFA at Parsons School of Design. Please help me welcome Noah and Lucas. <laughs> Noah, Lucas, thank you for joining me. Hey, Demetrius. Happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, uh, so really excited to to talk with you guys. Uh, saw some of the work that you're doing uh, at Cactus. It's um, really engaging and inspiring to see spaces start to evolve the way that you guys are presenting. So let's jump in and start by having you guys give our listeners a little bit of insight into uh, the two of you and then Cactus and, and what you guys are trying to do with Cactus. So my name is uh, Lucas Worthine. I'm one of the co-founders of Cactus with uh, Noah and Marcelo. Uh, we started this company about three years ago and I run everything that has to do with production and technology and to execute on things, build them and make them work. My background is in a mix of production and, and software development um, from previous engagements and previous jobs. My experience comes mainly from started really developing code. And as I started to develop code, uh, worked on projects that got bigger and bigger and then hired people to develop code, hard, hired people to develop hardware, and then started managing really the the work that needed to get done on the technology side. I'm Noah Waxman, and I'm also one of the co-founders, along with Lucas and Marcelo of Cactus. My personal background is one that 
you know, originally I was very interested in, in fine art and architecture, really, since I was a little kid, kind of always wanted to be involved with architecture. I thought I wanted to be an architect. One of those guys who like thought I wanted to be an architect for whatever, the first two decades of my life and kind of shied away from it once I I, I got into the into the weeds, but um, you know I love architecture and art. I also have done a lot of other entrepreneurial type activities in my in my career. Launched a, uh, another design business, um, and then most recently, before we started this this company, Cactus, I was working doing innovation consulting, which is sort of the the way of describing the type of business consulting and management consulting that focuses primarily on bringing new ideas to market. So a lot of that is in is sort of ingrained with brand and storytelling and also has a lot to do with new technologies and how they're changing different industries. So the role that I play at Cactus is the one that focuses primarily on on those things, on storytelling, on concept development, on brand aspects of the projects you know how does an experience of a place change uh, a person's connection to the brand that runs that place for example and and yeah our third partner is marcelo who's he's the classically trained architect of the group and he brings sort of the hard skills with with regard to the physical space to the table and i guess in terms of describing what cactus does you know, the best way I think to think of Cactus is it's sort of like it's a reflection of the three of us and our backgrounds. It's what happens when brand and innovation thinking meets architectural design and meets software development and back-end systems thinking, technology thinking. We three people, the three founders, sort of when we first started the company, I think we really inspired each other thinking about the convergence of digital space and physical space and how that's going to play out, you know, in this decade and decades to come. And it's interesting because from each of our individual perches, the other two's industries will have the big influence on that, right? Like in the future, architecture will involve software. In the future, software will involve architecture. In the future, brands will be increasingly concerned with the digital and physical spaces and the digital and physical spaces will be more concerned with the brands that sort of occupy and create them. And it's this sort of, you know, primordial soup that Cactus was born out of. We wanted to really focus on projects that tied all three of these things together. Um, and so we started the business and the rest is history. <laughs> so before we get further into the conversation, I want to give a little bit of a background of where we've come from. And to do that, you got to go back in time. Sometime around 770 BCE, the barter system of trading goods and services shifted to a retail system involving currency. Instead of negotiating value comparisons for differing items, currency expedited the exchange. The purchase and sale of goods are thought to have emerged in Asia, and research suggests that China had a rich history in retail systems, introducing coins, packaging, and branding. 
and Europe in a region called Lydia, which is now Western Turkey. The first facility to process the creation of currency known as a mint was established. However, the Roman form is arguably the earliest known example of permanent retail shop front. As cities developed through the 17th and 18th centuries, city and town centers were the hub for communities to buy goods and services. Small family-owned independent businesses known today as mom-and-pop shops were plentiful. Many jobs at the time were in agriculture, but behind the industrial revolutions, jobs in manufacturing and industry attracted workers, and these new well-paying jobs introduced a new standard of living. In the United States, this increase in wealth opened the door for larger department stores to supplant mom-and-pop shops. Department stores like Macy's, Bloomingdale's, and Sears didn't just sell items. They presented a new experience to indulge the meteoric rise of consumerism. With bigger budgets, they became fixtures of American life by offering demonstrations, lectures, and entertainment events that told newly wealthy consumers how they should spend their disposable income. In 1883, customer checkout and business accounting became even easier with the invention of the cash register by James Ritty. This invention would later evolve into point-of-sale or POS systems that we use today, but we'll touch on this a bit more shortly. Credit cards were introduced in the 1920s, allowing consumers to extend beyond their current status, subsequently fueling the next iteration of retail the indoor shopping mall. The paradigm shifted to providing more stuff, a variety of stuff, and comfort while you shop for your stuff. From the moment you arrive, something special happens at SeaTac Mall. Every one of our 106 stores and restaurants offers so much variety and with such style. A friendly, relaxed atmosphere to shop in, and events on the mall every week. Start your back-to-school shopping at SeaTac Mall, where something special happens the moment you arrive. Now there's a good reason the people come back to SeaTac Mall. In some regions, climate could put a damper on sales but the indoor shopping mall reduced those barriers to spend. Come in out of the cold to a Christmas wonderland. Come into climate-controlled North Bay Mall. It's your one-stop shopping mall for all your Christmas needs. A wonderful selection of shops and services. That's the North Bay Mall. And it's decked out in all its Christmas finery. Christmas shopping comes easy at the North Bay Mall with convenient store hours and plenty of free parking. Make the North Bay Mall your Christmas headquarters. It's the friendly place to shop at Highway 11B 300 Lakeshore Drive. The first indoor shopping mall opened in 1956 in Edna, Minnesota. Often anchored by a large department store, these buildings offered a variety of other stores connected in one controlled environment with communal facilities. As a side note, besides the amenities, the success of the indoor shopping mall was also greatly tied to the growing car culture in America. Due to the size of these facilities, they were often located in suburban areas. By 1960, just four short years, there were more than 4,500 malls in the U.S., accounting for 14% of all retail sales. Malls surged all the way to the 80s, an era defined by excess, softened government regulation, and effective advertising. 
Furthermore, mall culture created a playground for teens and preteens. If you grew up in the era, you probably understand the excitement of the mall when they were developed in your area. But if you're on the younger side and a fan of the Netflix series Stranger Things, you probably have a pretty good idea of what I mean by watching season 3 which centers around the Starcourt Mall, the new centerpiece of the fictional town of Hawkins, Indiana. While indoor malls provided a playground for teens, an escape to window shop or buy luxury items, there was still a need for a place to buy day-to-day -day items, and the ability to do it in one location like the general store of old was highly desirable. To accommodate the demands of a growing population, the general store concept would have to grow significantly and be able to work financially. However, there were actually laws that protected mom and pop shops at the time, prohibiting big retailers from getting volume discounts and allowing manufacturers to price their products that would be sold by retailers. After the 1950s, these laws began to break down and enters the big box store. In 1962, the first Walmart opened its doors in Rogers, Arkansas, followed by Target and Kmart that same year. The big box concept was an efficient system, providing common consumer goods at much lower prices. This concept worked from a corporate perspective because these companies bought from manufacturers in bulk at wholesale prices and stored much of its inventory there on site, minimizing warehouse fees. There's a lot of downside to this concept, but it exceeds a little bit of what we're discussing today. So we'll have to come to that in another episode. Now imagine another layer of efficiency where the physical store itself is actually removed from the sales process. In 1994, advancements in technology allow Jeff Bezos to sell books online. And just over 20 years later, his online retail platform, Amazon, reported a net income of over $10 billion in 2018. The growth of the internet fueled e-commerce, creating a digital world to purchase goods, and Amazon led the way by making the sales process more convenient and more palatable for consumers, removing as many barriers as possible in the sales process. Technology and the development of our digital world over the last 20 years have arguably had the greatest impact on the retail industry, making it increasingly difficult and forcing an evolution for brick-and-mortar stores. In addition, some in the retail industry estimate that the COVID-19 pandemic also accelerated the evolution by about five years, pushing brick-and-mortar stores to adopt new ways to sell. To understand more about the evolution, I spoke with a friend of mine who has a unique perspective on the industry. Something that's been pretty popular recently is curbside pickup, which is something that, you know, the, the hospitality, the restaurant space has been doing for a long time. The pandemic has kind of escalated that, you know, into the retail side of the business. And luckily we, you know, because at Heartland Point of Sale, we have the hospitality products and retail products. We've been kind of able to use some of that knowledge in common restaurant space and bring it into the retail application. Jordan Stat is a senior director of dealer sales and growth for Heartland Payment Systems, a company that provides merchant processing services. Jordan works in the point of sale division, managing the revenue production of the POS products, which provide lots of insight into the trends and needs of retailers nationwide. 
We get a lot of insight, certainly on production and usage from a data perspective. You know, we can see sales trends, things of that nature, you know, across our merchant profile, especially for our cloud-based products, which is very telling. You know, obviously we can see declines in sales, historical and seasonal, I guess, production rates for merchants. And, you know, we have a very keen interest in finding out, you know, really what local operators are doing, you know, to help stop this retail apocalypse. Are you seeing any societal changes that are sort of tipping what the future evolution of retail and, and your work is going to look like? Well, I mean, the, the biggest societal change, I think, is is probably just the nature of how the consumer now wants to interact with any business that they're spending money at. Um, people don't generally like to interact and go buy things anymore anywhere. It's people would rather sit at their house buy something on their phone and have it brought to them. And it goes deeper than just, you know, just that. I think that there's, you know, we hear a lot about like the younger generations not wanting to talk to people and to interact socially. And I think those kinds of things will continue to drive, you know, the need to have alternative distribution methods for products across I mean, really any vertical retail or hospitality, you know, because frankly, if someone can't buy the way that they want to, they just won't do it. And it goes down to, you know, more than just like the high level methodology. It's actually specific to like the way that you process payments, right? There's people who won't buy from stores that don't accept Apple Pay because it's inconvenient for them to have to pull their credit card out of their wallet versus just hold their phone up to the thing. Or even inside of, you know, an e-commerce cart, if they can't leverage Apple Pay to just use the cart or the card that's already in their mobile wallet, they get frustrated and they no longer patronize those stores. So there's a big, you know, push towards like what I think personally is kind of a almost like a silly, you know, inconvenience factor, but it's actually driving a lot of consumer behavior. Are there any complexities that you're seeing emerge out of the retail space and maybe specifically to what you guys do? Most notably, it's speed of deployment and you know, really a shift to what we're calling the digital versus physical world. For a long time, especially retail merchants and, you know, small mom and pop or SMB retail merchants have always been very good at being sort of niche and generating traffic, you know, locally to their storefront. But obviously with the pandemic and pre-pandemic, just, you know, Amazon competitive forces, those merchants now have to really be able to put up and stand up digital storefronts very, very quickly. But if you hadn't made that shift prior, you hadn't recognized that, you now have to retrofit your business in order to solve for that problem. And the biggest complexity that we see out there in the space is that there's a lot of software products that were never really designed to work in that sort of omni-channel or e-commerce mode. And, you know, it takes obviously software development, but also just different architecture in order to deploy that you know, namely client server versus cloud, there's things that a client server system just cannot do that a cloud system can. And so, you know, what we try to do, certainly in acquiring a cloud product is have something that's an offering for that. But we also have a large merchant base that is not running a cloud product that, again, has that same problem that we now need to kind of shift and bring into this, you know, new digital world that is kind of a requirement to succeed at all. But without a physical presence, how would businesses connect to consumers? Again, the internet. The rapid development and reach of the internet has tied society together and individuals to brands, 
maybe even more so than any other time in history. Email lists and then the advent of social media in 2007 gave companies direct two-way lines to their target customer. Is the vertical that you're going into in the retail space, is there a niche demand for it? Um, If you want to sell something that people can buy locally, you also need the ability to sell it remotely. And, And the story that I have in my experience is I've been running since the pandemic started a lot because there's nothing else for me to be doing. And as a part of that, I started following people on Instagram who run because they were posting pictures of just cool shoes all the time that, you know, as a runner, you're like, oh, I need new shoes because it'll help me run faster and better. And one of the guys that I follow lives in Twin Cities, Minneapolis, and he's a, you know, kind of a local legend and is a sort of sponsored member of this business there called TC Running Company that has a local, you know, physical store presence for running gear, shoes, outfits, you know, hard goods that are related to running. And there's certain shoes online in the running world now that you just really cannot get from anywhere digitally. Um, an example of that is this new Nike shoe that the two hour marathon was record was broken in. And I've been trying to get it via Nike's app online for six months. And every time I go to try to get it, it's sold out. But following this particular person on Instagram, I was able to find out that they would, you know, locally have this shoe in stock, but also make a certain number of them available for sale via their online store, which, you know, again, is this good example of you have available product to sell online and available product to sell in store. And it's all kind of married together. And following this person on Instagram with this specific date and time of day, I was able to secure a pair of these amazing new running shoes from a business that is nowhere near local to me here in Phoenix, Arizona. They're a thousand miles away in, you know, Minneapolis, but I got shoes that have been impossible for me to get directly from the manufacturing retailer just because of this marriage between social media technology, local brick and mortar presence and online e-commerce presence, which is pretty cool. From bartering to digital stores, retail has evolved greatly. While physical stores are facing a difficult business climate, I don't think they'll ever go away, but they will have to evolve to something new. The answer could likely lie in trends that we've already seen in the past, making things more efficient, like removing the hassle of negotiating value in the barter system, creating a version of one-stop shopping, like the big box stores, providing convenience like Amazon, or comfort like the indoor shopping mall, or introducing an experience for customers like Macy's, Bloomingdale's, and Sears. Whatever it is, the consumers are out there. They just need more of a reason than an actual sale to get them into the store. When you approached the retail projects that you guys have, what kind of came to the surface as far as looking at retail and what was your idea of what's happening in retail today? Yeah, absolutely. At a high level, I would say Cactus approaches retail not as a room with stuff that is for sale. That's that's sort of, you know, obvi- I think that certainly most listeners won't think that this is the first time they've heard that. You know, traditional retail has been changing and under pressure for a long time now. Obviously, there's a lot of forces that, that cause that. But if you're in the market for an architecture firm to design you a store with a bunch of shelves so that you can move maximum numbers of products, 
you know, you're not going to hire Cactus. We're not the we're not the right team for you. And it's also not what interests us personally, frankly. To me, the cool thing about retail in 2020 and beyond is that retail is more like advertising used to be. You know, it's the way that a brand, whether you're new to the market and you're a startup and you're launching for the first time and you want to open a small flagship or you're Nike, you know, or you're Target uh, or Walmart, your store should be thought of, in my opinion, as the best way to make a meaningful brand connection to your target customer and introduce your customer to products. Definitely introduce your customer to your brand ethos and vision and mission. Also very important and and definitely yes. And also I think that physical spaces that are controlled by brands can be used for things that may not even be products. Like there are some examples that we've started to see of brands charging money to gain admission to what might've used to have been called a retail store. Like one of the One of the spaces that we've had a lot of success with is a a group called the Slumu Institute in Soho. And they're basically a slime experiential center for slime, right? But it is an amazing funnel into their store, which is Soho storefront primo retail on Broadway. But really what that's, you know, 80% or so of the square feet are used as a place for people to pay entrance and play with stuff. Interesting. When they leave, they leave through the gift shop. And that is a really, really profitable gift shop. Um, so that model is really interesting to me also. It sounds like a like a theme park. You go and hit the ride. Yeah. And then as you're coming out, you walk through the gift shop. And, uh, yeah. and your kids are looking at all the themes that they just rode. And they're like, I have to have that t-shirt or whatever. Totally. So, yeah, I mean, I think that our approach to retail is summarized as retail should should be lots of things. But a store with shelves to move maximum product? Probably not. So it sounds like you think the future is more towards an experience-based space and not solely looked at as sales for, for retail to actually work in the future. Yeah, I mean, it's hugely different depending on the retail category. Different companies have very different, first of all, very different types of products, right? So if you're selling candy or you're selling cars it's a completely different type of calculus for for you know quote moving product and so i think that to say that the future of retail is you know it should be experiential i'm 100 percent yes that's that is the future i just think it's lots of categories still need to move a lot of product to justify that and that's okay it's it's um i think that good retail design comes from really understanding what moves the needle for that business in this moment in time and trying to design for that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think um, not only is it experiential, but it's also educational. It's also entertaining um, as we've seen with, with everything that's, that's happening and even previous to everything that's happening there, there is just a, a very, very strong uh, argument that, that all these brands can and are and go and are going to be even more digital. And so what what is um, the retail location and, and why are they going physical? Why do we see this phenomenon of even traditional digital brands that started as digital also going physical? And it's to, to the point that Noah was saying, it's to connect with their customers, to connect with their audience. 
And so I think even post COVID and with everything that's happening in the world, the retail space will be a space for people to, in a sense, escape. And so they don't need to only escape to the museum or to the restaurant or to the bar. Uh, retail should also be an extension to provide people not only with a shopping experience, but with much more because it will also become an opportunity. That's so fascinating thinking about the possibility of retail shifting to almost this this play atmosphere. Um, like you mentioned, Noah, the, the space that you saw where they pay that cover, uh, pay a couple bucks to just come in and play or learn or whatever, and then if you are so connected to that brand, then you purchase something on the way out. That's so fascinating. Cause in my mind, I thought I initially came into this thinking that retail was going to be more about in the future was going to be more uh, dedicated towards like returns. Cause I see that's how it is. It's turning into right now. It's uh you buy something online, you buy a bunch of different sizes and colors of it. You try it on at home and like, ah, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. So then you go to the physical space to return it. And it seems like that's kind of what it is right now. And there's only a few people that are actually shopping in there. Um, so I thought more space would be dedicated to sort of, uh, well, the spaces will reduce in general, but more would be dedicated to uh, serving people that were returning items and then just a small corner for actual shopping and using screens to shop or something like that and just having a few items there. But the, now talking to you guys, I think this way makes way more sense as a brand to really push what your brand is about and to sell an experience to people that they ultimately will get even more tied to your brand. That makes total sense. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're saying is also really interesting. I think that one of the interesting factors in what you're describing is the market, actually. And I mean, like the, the geographic hmm. real estate market, right? So the type of behavior that you're talking about is probably a little bit less economical in, in expensive, market, expensive real estate markets. Mm -hmm. You're not going to pay for primo priced square foot real estate to allow people to return stuff, you'd be crazy to because people are walking by, they're going to look in the window, you should be selling to them. And I don't mean selling like they should walk away with product necessarily, but at least give them some impression of your brand and what you're about and what they can benefit from by, by sort of having a relationship with you as a brand. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in bigger spaces, like I could imagine someday that a lot of what larger box, you know, like the Walmarts of the world, big targets, big box of the world, you know, there could be a, a day where certain locations actually do more volume in returns than volume in sales. And that's okay, probably, right? Like, and again, I think it really depends on the category. But yeah, for sure, user behavior is changing really rapidly in terms of how we buy stuff. Mm -hmm. And screens have everything to do with that. There are certain categories of products that probably discovery in, in the physical sense, in the physical space, really doesn't matter anymore. Um, you don't need to shop for that in physical space. You can buy a couple different sizes of something online. And like you said, if the easiest way to return the rest is to just drive down the street and drop it back off, yeah, that could totally be one of the things that retail stores need to optimize for. 
Yeah, because like, you know, I forget what I think there's a specific name for it, but the little Amazon shops that are starting to pop up where you they have lockers that you can pick up and um, slots to drop off and return items. Like I see that kind of dedicated facility popping up for different brands, um, you know, around um, just to make it easier to manage rather than maybe maybe instead of using a store as that you have these little pop-up centers where people can drop off and, and pick up. And then the, the, the actual space where you're using that, um, the prime space you're using for more experiential, uh, type Mm -hmm. of facility. I was going to say, just look at all the news of like how shopping malls are large box segments of shopping malls are being converted into Amazon warehousing and sorting centers, literally. Yeah. That's a, pretty prime example of that trend yeah yeah and i i think that this concept you know that that let's just call it concept of play uh is not necessarily related to you know when you think about slime it's mostly children Mm -hmm. right but there's other super successful brands that are that are playing into this right you can go to a nike store put on some shoes and go into the basketball court and play a game and so they want you to feel connected to that game not only is it just a basketball hoop but it's an interactive basketball hoop. And so they've gamified the entire thing so that you actually feel something much greater than just buying that shoe online. Right now you're connected to that specific time. There's a photo taken of you or a GIF or you know a video and now you have that memory. And so there's so much more that has been done to now connect you to that specific moment in time with that product. The same thing with uh, the children's store called Camp um, that is rapidly expanding here in New York. You know, you go in and you can take your kids in to play. You don't need to buy anything. But again, you're creating these interesting moments um, with your family and with your children that are going to connect you to that specific brand. Um, you have this happening throughout the fitness space. Um, now that the connected fitness space is exploding, the in-home fitness space Examples like Peloton and Mirror, which just sold to Lulu for, you know, $500 million. But both of them had retail locations and not necessarily to sell more product, but, you know, one of them had classes and they wanted to connect you to the instructors that are celebrities and to feeling what it's like to be in an actual class. While Mirror, um, they they weren't doing this, but I think they were about to start sort of yoga classes and examples of what it would be like to work with one of the Mirrors. And so it's not necessarily about the usability of the product anymore, but it's about how do you generate feeling, right? Not only in terms of you being connected to the brand and to the ethos of the brand, but actually having something tactile, which is so important for any of us, I think. Yeah, I get excited when these you start to connect these dots. And what, as you were talking, what came to mind is totally what disney has capitalized on their entire infrastructure was based on that that feeling that connection to their their audience the kids and it's just been ingrained similar to to mcdonald's and it ingrained in them with the with a playhouse in their stores it ingrained in the children at a young age that brand and they just constantly kept kept coming back to that brand because there's memories that's connect that are connected to their experience with that brand. It's more so than just the product of the food or the um, or the games or whatever or just the name. It's a it's a feeling that 
that comes up and you don't know why you're so tied to that brand, but it's been ingrained in you from a young child and all the memories that you have. You're tied to your memories of fun and, and that dopamine that's released and you're, you're just loyal to that brand for the rest of your life. But um, I wanted to jump back to Nike. You started to talk about Nike a little bit. Is that the store that you guys did in Brazil? The store we did in Brazil doesn't have a, a basketball court. The store that has a basketball court is the flagship um, that was launched, like, not, I think last year uh, on Fifth Avenue. Um, that's the, the Nike headquarters store, which is super, super interesting and really, really nicely designed. Okay. The Nike store we developed for, uh, Brazil is actually a, a project that goes back um, to 2014. Um, so it's about six years old already. And, and the objective of that project was to really capture, Nike wanted to, to create factory outlet stores in, in Latin America, and they needed to create a model for what that, that store was going to be. And so part of the process was really getting in deep with Nike design and understand their brand and how they wanted to ex express themselves um, within the market of, of Latin America. And so what we did was basically create the layout and uh, the groundwork of what was the store that needed to be built and replicated throughout the rest of Latin America. And so we did one in Rio, we did one in Sao Paulo. Um, and then they took that concept, the aesthetic concept, the construction concept, the technology concept, and that was implemented throughout numerous stores across Latin America. Got it. What was uh, what was sort of the concept, if you can describe that you that you guys did with that store? There were two concepts. One was because it was pre World Cup in in Brazil. Uh, there was a lot of emphasis in, in soccer and how to highlight the, the identity of soccer throughout the Nike store, especially in Latin America. Um, and so much of that was how to express that identity. And we did a lot of work with um, graffiti artists that would come in and paint murals about soccer and how to position product um, and how to give uh, really prominence to some of the jerseys and players and cleats that were important and sponsored, uh, and that Nike would sponsor, mm -hmm. um, some of the players that Nike would sponsor. Um, the other really big concept around this was creating this industrial look and feel um, for how the stores actually needed to, to feel for to the public. Um, and that was really capturing really the design intent of what Nike wanted to express um, and, and coming up with the design solutions of how sort of to integrate this very integrated feel of soccer and concrete and industrial and pipes and sort of infrastructure being exposed. Got it. On the technology front, what were you introducing there? At the time, you know, uh, this was six years ago. So the main pieces of technology that were hyped up at the time were mostly touchscreen technology and creating insights and deep dives into the products and the story about the products. Got it. So Two things that you guys mentioned were software and then uh, storytelling. Storytelling to me is an element of psychology, and those things are very difficult to pinpoint. Software and, and the psychology, the human psychology. Am I right in my assumption that those tend to be some of the more complex parts of your approach to 
uh, both retail and uh, your projects in general? Or is there is there something else that bubbles to the surface as far as like one of the most complex part of approaching uh, a retail project? That's a great question. <laughs> so doing things that have never been done before is hard. It's harder than doing things that have an inherent process behind them because either the client or the firm has done it many times in the past. Those types of projects, ones that are really well understood in advance, aren't the kind of projects that Cactus tends to get. Why is that? Because Cactus is seen, I think rightfully so, we try to to be honest in our outward communications about the fact that we love to take risks with our clients. We want clients who are daring and audacious and have big ideas and are not uncomfortable with the fact that they have many known unknowns and also many unknown unknowns. You know, we, we love that, frankly. That's why we started this company. We're thrilled to work in those spaces. So when you ask about complexity, again, I think it's just, it's really different depending on the project. There are projects that have been incredibly complex from a software and engineering perspective in pulling off the kinds of things that our clients want within the budget that they have. One example of that, in my opinion, is the project that we did for Mount Sinai Hospital, which is a diagnostics clinic that pulls in information from a whole bunch of different medical devices, each with their own software you know, constraints pulling all of that data into a unified database that's then usable for medical researchers in the future and also presentable to regular everyday Joe Schmoes like us in a way that makes them excited and makes them interested in their own bodies and, their, and the bio data that's being collected about them. That's a really hard software project mm -hmm. that took a big team and a lot of organization with a lot of complexity. There are other projects that are very complex from a brand and storytelling perspective. Um, one example that I would give there that comes to mind is this company called Rise Nation, um, which is a climbing gym. It's a, it's a gym, it's a group fitness concept that we've been working with since day one, you know, before they had their first gym. And it's a modality of exercise that most people aren't familiar with. It's stationary climbing motion, a cross-crawl cross stationary climbing motion. Um, and like finding the way to communicate all of the physiological benefits of this particular type of exercise, along with all of the benefits of this particular brand of group fitness, which is highly motivational, super high energy, very dependent on music and tempo, um, and then combining that with a story that we wanted to tell about connecting to rock climbing, just because we think it's cool. It's, it's a cool thing that people who are used to being stuck on treadmills or stationary bikes would be interested to hear. Like there's a group fitness class. There is a soul cycle for rock climbing motion. That's a cool story. Those three stories are each hard to tell individually, and we wanted to tell all three. So that's an example of a project where storytelling was way more complicated than software on that. Yes, there's software. We built an app. We made a really cool interactive physical environment for them. But in my opinion, that was a brand project. 
brand complexity was the heart of that. And I think the same can be true for architecture. We've done some projects where we've, for example, on this dermatology startup, we, we worked with them, it's called Everbody. And for them, we came up with this concept um, for their flagship that all of our work should be able to dramatically reduce the time, effort, and money to launching their follow-on locations. And so we wanted to create a modular system that they could use, they could own, and could, could launch future locations with. That project, the complexity of the architecture was far more than the complexity of either the brand or technology side. Again, yes, there was a lot of storytelling. We named that company, we did all the branding, it's been very successful. There are the software element involved. There's some um, electrical engineering involved with that project, also complex. But in my mind, the coolest and most complex challenge there was the modular interiors that we developed for them. So that's a really long-winded answer, but I think <laughs> What makes Cactus fun to work at is that we don't know when we start these projects where they're going to get complex and where they where they won't. Yeah, yeah I, I think Noah went uh, into into project specific, but but I I think that um, success and complexity is actually tied to control. And what are the factors that we know that we control at Cactus? We control architecture, and we know that the architecture. And the output of architecture and design are going to be phenomenal because our art director and Marcelo is a genius. The challenges of brand and brand identity and how to tell stories, we know that we can control those factors because Noah knows how to do that really well with his team and he's a genius. We know that um, technology is often hard and often breaks, but the way we build technology and because we work in the field of permanent spaces and not uh, temporary spaces, we have an approach to building technology in which things uh, usually don't break. Um, it's harder because it's technology and technology tends to break, but we do have a really good process. there. So those are the three variables that we control. And we can assume that the project will be successful in that sense because we do control those three variables. But the process that we don't and the, and the part that we don't control really is everything that is tied to the relationship, right? And so the politics, the social dynamics that exist within a client, within an organization, the bureaucracy, when we lose things, when we lose control of these things, which are at a higher level, that is what jeopardizes the success and the complexity of the project in the end. And so one of the most important things that, you know, how we've evolved and how we've learned over the years and years that we've worked in this field is that in the end, the success of our project is really tied to the strength of the relationships that you build and how much trust is put in those relationships in the end. Because as Noah was saying, because we have this iterative process, it makes us really close with the clients. And the closer we can get to the clients, the more chance of success that we have on these projects in which we are taking big risks. And so that is really important. Great, great, great input. For the record, I love that answer, even though it wasn't my way. <laughs> uh, now, for now, if I ask you, is there anything inherently complex about retail uh, working with a retail space? Does that change either of your answers in any way? 
I mean, for me, retail all comes down to behavior. You know, the, 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 the location of the store, the type of product, the type of humans that work on selling those products or showcasing those products in the store, the character of the building in which the store is located and the neighborhood in which the store is located, um, all shape behavior. And then in addition to that, the brand that's doing the selling and doing the product making and marketing has behaviors that they want to elicit. And so to me, I think that retail is like, like we said before, I think it's, I would say it's more psychology and less of everything else, software, architecture, tech, materials, all the rest should go to the back and psychology should go to the first, the four. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think my, my answer is the same. Yeah. I, I think that's sort of the same of the psychology and the relationship. <laughs> Um, when you get into dealing with a company and the various areas of people that have opinions and if if you do lose control there, uh, that definitely adds a com complexity that you don't want to have to face. Um, and the right and the right to have opinions and the right to bring people from multiple sectors and areas to have opinions because that is what shapes their company um but it's our job and and mainly noah's job which which you know again he does so well which is digesting interpreting and creating outputs um for these opinions that make sense to the client and really takes them on on the journey of what we are developing yeah what are some of the current trends that you guys are seeing right now in in the retail space yeah, so I think we're we're seeing a couple of things. Um, you know, this is an interesting moment to to be doing this podcast, obviously, because retail needs to adapt, right? There's many places that haven't opened or that have partially opened, and so there's a real solution of how that needs to be implemented for these these places to be this retail spaces to be operational. And one of the things and a lot of the discussions that we've been seeing is how to adapt um, other solutions that have been working in other environments towards retail. One of the perfect examples of this is the idea of reservations, right? You, you book a ticket to go to the theater, you book a ticket to, or you book, you make a reservation to go to a restaurant, um, you make a reservation or you know, buy a spot uh, to go to a cycling class or to a yoga class. And that concept we think will, will expand to retail, right? And will make retail even more personalized. Um, and so because of all the now norms of society that we're gonna need to, to live by in terms of social distancing, um, at least for some time, theoretically, that is gonna be really important, right? For you to be able to want to go through experience to see a product, but you really can't be in a store with multiple people, you need to respect the, the rules of physical distancing. Um, and so how can you have access? And the only way you can have access is through the idea of, of creating sort of this platform of reservations. And so one, one of the things we've been hearing a lot is actually the, the explosion of software, of reservation software, which I think Noah can talk a little bit about as well, but how some companies are pivoting now to really be able to adapt the needs of retail so that they can offer reservations and 
and be really flexible, right? Because if we know that when we have a doctor's appointment or a dentist appointment, what's the percentage of appointments that get canceled? It's gigantic. Imagine in retail where the commitment is even less, <laughs> yeah. right? And so the design and the software will need to adapt to that behavior. So also the retailer isn't, um, you know, doesn't land at a loss. And so I, I think that will be an interesting challenge to integrate into the physical slash uh, digital journey of this user and this retailer. That's interesting. And Noah, do you want to expand on that? Here's what I would say to add. There are pre-COVID-19 trends, and then there's COVID-19, which is its own trend and trend accelerator. Like it's, it's acted as this crazy accelerant to all sorts of things that were already happening across industries and behaviors and lots of other things. But yes. For sure, the trend of retail stores being more connected to an omni-channel strategy, as I'm using the parlance of the industry, right? The omni-channel strategy, meaning from your phone to your home, to your desktop computer, to the store, to a human that talks to you about the things, to an AI that tells you about the things that you can buy, being seamless, from a customer journey perspective across those different selling channels is going to be more and more important. One example of that is what you were talking about. If I buy five pairs of shoes online and keep one, what do I do with the other four? Probably getting UPS to come pick it up isn't the most efficient and certainly not the most sustainable way of dealing with that. Um, but there's a dozen others making reservations, Making appointments to talk to sales professionals, I think, will actually be an increasing thing that happens. I think that's a little bit counterintuitive, especially in COVID-19. But um, I think that especially in high-end retail, really having an appointment to go look at that handbag or look at a car or look at a piece of you know, home electronics equipment and having a one-on-one -on -one appointment with a person who should know all the answers and really helps you get all the way from A to Z um, might be really, that might actually be something that we see increase. Um, even though there's a social element there, giving it to one-on-one -on -one and trying to get both parties to agree, look, this is really there's an intent to buy and we're going to like invest in you as a customer to get you across the finish line for high ticket items. We might see that that's increasing. Yeah. So, uh, so you guys mentioned, and I think that's a fascinating point about the, uh, shift to more dedicated appointments and speaking with the, the customer and, and the, the salesperson, it sort of reduces the window shopping aspect of retail, which is also interesting. But going back to our earlier conversation, maybe that's diverted to that play space. And it's more about, you know, you engage in, with the brand and, and build that relationship first on your own. And then when you're really, you've convinced yourself as a, as a buyer that this is what I want to do, then you go straight in and it's a much more efficient exchange of uh, talking to someone and having that sales process happen. Um, so you guys mentioned COVID-19. Is there anything else that you see in society that the two of you are watching for future trends and, and kind of where, where the retail market will have to move um, outside of what you already talked about? 
I'm watching anxiously without really trying to predict where it's going to go because I can't. I mean, I think that it's a really interesting moment. Again, it comes back to psychology. Everyone's been cooped up. And, you know, Lucas and I were talking yesterday and he made this point, like, you know, is there going to be another post-war period? Is there, you know, is, are, the, are the, so the, the troops coming home when there could be a vaccine, a lot of the population agrees to take it, hopefully and all of a sudden from one month to the next it's like hey let's let's party and like people want to get together people want to get together with their families with their friends they want to you know yeah do all the things we haven't been able to do during lockdown that would be really interesting for retailers it'd be really interesting for cactus's business what's the most fun way to get people to reconnect you know i imagine i imagine um really interesting formats for pop-ups in that sense and really interesting formats for sort of retail events rather than just retail stores. Hmm. Um, you know, if, if you like to ski, maybe there's a moment where like everyone is in the market for skis because it's been two years since we've been allowed to ski. I'm thinking of this because what's behind me, yeah. you know, you could have an event that could be true for, food that could be true for fashion that could be true for yoga that could be like across the board it could be true for buying cars you know enthusiasts kind of come together to check out all the new innovations they haven't been able to test drive for if if it's a year or two um that could be really interesting yeah i i also wonder um you know specifically talking about the time that we're in if we won't start seeing a stronger push of original physical retailers trying to partner up with brands that have gone into our homes, right? So connected fitness, for example, is, is, is a great example of this. Suddenly everyone wants some sort of connected fitness device in their homes. Um, and we're using it maybe an hour two hours a day. Maybe, uh, you know, our kids are using it, our wives are using it or, you know, whoever lives in the household and are there partnerships that are going to be formed to try to push out content, to try to push out product? You know, if you're in fitness, are they going to partner with companies that do supplements, for example, and, you know, going to try to sell you on sports strings or similar things. Mm -hmm. And so um, is there a part in which these companies that don't necessarily have access to your phone, to your home can find access to your home by the means of other companies, because those are the companies that are in your homes right now. So it's, it's inverted, right? Instead of trying to get you to the store, um, how do they get into your home? <laughs> That's scary and fascinating at the same time. Um, what's one thing that you would advise or recommend a person that's approaching a retail project uh, to mm. consider? To me, I think the most interesting thing would be to consider the lifetime value of the customer and the lifetime relationship you want to have with the customer. Okay. I think that that's the right way to think about physical retail. Physical retail is a big investment. It's by its nature, much harder to change. Though there's lots we can do to make it changeable, it's still much harder to change than a website. And so if you're going to put, uh, you know, literally a stake in the ground, so to speak, um, and it's going to be there for 
five, 10, 15 years, I think that retailers should think about the long-term value that it creates. And to me, that again, goes back to psychology and relationship. You should build something permanent and show up in a way that's trustworthy um, and exciting in a sustainable way, sustainable excitingness. <laughs> I really like the, the, this idea of, of play um, regardless of what industry you're in, um, what is the moment of play that you're going to create so that your customer, your client is engaging uh, and going on this journey of your brand's narrative with you, um, regardless if it's um, a ceiling filled with lights that uh, take you uh, on a journey as if you were in a nightclub or you know, if um, you're putting in a product that we've created called Mira, which it's an automated camera system that takes photos of you in a space and it's supposed to get you off the phone and into that moment. But how do you really engage with, with people, with clients and create um, moments and memories that they will remember? That, that will be, to me, more relevant than, as Noah put it, uh, putting shelves and putting product. Great. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, the last question is, how can people find out more about you and Cactus and what where, where can they find you? Where can they follow? Yeah, the best two ways to find out about Cactus is our website, um, cactus.is, www.cactus.is, and our Instagram, uh, which is at cactus.is. So we've also referenced um, two products that Cactus has brought to market. One is called Mira, that's M-I-R-A, and the website is www.mira-cam, M-I-R-A-C-A-M.com. That's the product that automates selfies. It's like it's the photography as a service uh, product that Lucas mentioned. And the other product that you can find that we've brought to market is called Cubic Sky, www.cubic-sky.com. That's the interactive lighting system that allows environments to, the lighting of environments to react to people and data within. Great. Uh, so thank you so much, guys. Really appreciate it. Great conversation. Um, so for our listeners, we will see you in a couple weeks for our next long form show. And then for the little show in between, uh, check back with us. Uh, should be tomorrow, Thursday. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Demetrius. This show is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. You can help support what we're doing here by leaving a five-star rating and a review on your preferred podcasting app. It helps others find us, and your support is the only way that this show grows. And don't forget to connect with us through our Facebook community, Instagram, and see the random thoughts and articles that we share on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you again for spending some time with us. Talk soon.
Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLamey, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.